Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud, and this is the show where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics and always from an authentically Catholic perspective. Today, our guest will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network, returning to Dr. Doctor for his eighth episode, the most for any guest talking about something besides the COVID pandemic, is Dr. Kevin Majors, a psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School. We and our listeners have really enjoyed Kevin's episodes. What have you found fascinating about listening to Kevin? Uh, it would be a much shorter list to say, what have I not found fascinating <laughs> about listening to Kevin? Uh, I think he's he's one of the most intriguing and interesting people um, that I've ever talked to. And it, it occurred to me in preparing, not many people can say they've ever had or, or want to say they've ever had a conversation with a psychiatrist. Uh, but Kevin, <laughs> Kevin is a glaring exception to that. He's so articulate and he has such a unique way of presenting the normal in such a super normal, exciting, refreshing way. Uh, I know this is going to be a great episode as every episode with him uh, really is great. We've had him on talking about all kinds of things. Our, our astute listeners will remember uh, discussions on anxiety, the idea that it's prayer waiting to happen, on some of the crazy emotions that some of us crazy humans feel sometimes. Uh, we've had him talk about psychiatry and why the world most definitely needs more Catholic psychiatrists. He's helped us cope with pandemic stress and uh, use of cognitive behavioral therapy. He's talked to us about relationship between anxiety and this strange word called flow that I think he'll probably talk to us a little bit more tonight. He's talked to us about so much, it's impossible not to enjoy time with uh, Kevin Majors. Yeah, it's been so practical for improving my life. And one of the few podcasts I ever listened to is his Golden Hour podcast, which one of his co-founders of a, a work called Optimal Work, uh, which he does every week. They're about 20 minutes long. And there's always something practical I can use in my daily life. And that's why in this episode, we want to cover what in the world is he doing at this place called Optimal Work that he launched, I believe, in April this year. It was planned to be launched. And it just so happened it came out you know, as the pandemic was upon us. And uh, so I encourage listeners, if they enjoy what they hear today, uh, look up you know, Kevin Majors, M-A-J-E-R-E-S, an Optimal Work, the Golden Hour podcast. I think you'll find something you enjoy. You know, some listeners might be questioning, wait, I thought this was a medical show. Why are you talking about work? Uh, and stay tuned. Uh, hold that Hold that question. I think it'll become clear because we really are going to talk about a great intersection of faith and medicine and that how we can, how we can make our work uh, more a part of our faith life, and how we can just be better at our work life. Uh, and certainly people much more intelligent than me have said, one of the greatest things we can do as Christians is, is to be good at what we do and to evangelize through good and meaningful work. Um, and to not be anxious about that, but yet to actually enjoy it and, and look forward to it. Uh, it really is the intersection, I think, of faith and medicine. And, and Kevin's going to share with us how this does intersect with the Catholic understanding of work, the Catholic understanding of virtue and being holy. And one of the principles uh, underlying the concept of the golden hour is turning everything we see as a challenge or something to dread as really an opportunity to grow in virtue and to act in love. Uh, many businesses do what's called a SWOT analysis, strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And through these principles, I've never been in a business setting where we talk about, well, how can we turn this threat into an opportunity? But that's almost all Kevin talks about. And what a wonderful thing if all the things we fear become the things to help us become better versions of ourselves. And I personally cannot emphasize this approach uh, too much because during the pandemic, based on things I've learned from Kevin and other psychiatrists, I was able to get off of medicine for anxiety after 30 years on it. These principles work, they change your life, and we hope that listening to Kevin will help change your life for the better so you can be the person God made you to be. But of course, before we go to our break, I'll pose our medical trivia question of the day. One of the concepts that Kevin will talk about is this state that Chris mentioned called flow. The term was coined by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi in 1975. Yes, it's a mouthful. That's his name. 
He's a psychologist in positive psychology and uh, coined that term. Uh, actually, it's probably 1995, isn't it? Yes, 1995. I probably got a little too early in there. Anyway, he coined this term flow, which we sometimes refer to as being in the zone. In such a state, awareness of everything except the work you're doing at that moment falls away. The question is, why did Csikszentmihalyi call this state flow instead of being in the zone? You'll have to wait till the end of the show to find the answer to why he called that state flow. But after the break, we'll be back with Kevin Majors to talk about optimal work in the golden hour. Welcome back to today's episode of Dr. Doctor, where we, Dr. Kevin Majors, is our guest once again from Harvard Medical School, where he teaches psychiatry residents. And he's also the co-founder of a group, a work called Optimal Work. So very simply, Kevin, welcome back. And what gave you the idea to launch OptimalWork.com? Well, thank you so much, Tom, for having me back. Chris, it's great to be here with you. So the original idea um, came from a mentoring program that I had started in Cambridge. And so I was working with a lot of students and we, I developed something called the inventory. And the inventory is this, it's 24 questions that, in, in my way of thinking of it, these questions help people to focus on real struggles, not imaginary ones. And these are all 24 you know, things that you can actually work on and improve. And so that inventory became the original thing that was offered uh, on OptimalWork.com so that the people I was mentoring would be able to take it online. We also developed a way of working, of setting up one hour of work a day to be kind of like a super practice hour. So that you, and like, you put all the ingredients into like how to really, you know, that allow people to work at their very best. And that we called the golden hour. And then that became the other central part of the website, helping people to do a golden hour of work, which just means that you set, you in before you start, you pause, and you try to see how you can make it essentially most beautiful. What is the best kind of work that you can do here? And you bring silence to your mind. And that gives you real strength to carry out that hour of work and to be enthused, by remain enthused until the very end of it. So, Kevin, you know, work is supposed to be uh, horrible, and we're supposed to <laughs> we're supposed to dislike it. You know, I always say to my employees, "Stop all this smiling. This is work." Um, <laughs> but I'm guessing, as a psychiatrist, you've spent many, many years listening to people who do, who do feel that way that that work is treacherous and they don't like it. But it seems to be that the happiest people enjoy their work. In your estimation. What's in the secret sauce of those happy people that enjoy their days at work? Well, like anything in psychology, the very thing that seems to like be the trigger to be miserable <laughs> can actually be the launching pad for growth. Uh, Are you going to be in a kind of negative survival mode, just getting through each day, getting each thing done? Who likes that? So, or are you going to be in this kind of expansive growth mode where I'm going to really treat my work today like a workout and I'm going to look forward to getting a better and better workout from each hour. And we're going to get into details of that, Kevin, but first I want to explore some Catholic principles and there's um, a famous, it's not really a movement. It's called a personal prelature in the Catholic church called Opus Dei, which translates from the Latin into work of God or God's work. And the founder, St. Jose Maria Escriva, had a special point of really focusing on what he called the sanctification of work. So how does that concept of sanctification of work in the Catholic Church, and in our tradition, fit with what you're trying to do in optimal work? Well, it is the, the real wisdom, I would say, that I originally learned when I was very young, uh, uh, the, the teachings of St. Jose Maria about this idea that you can sanctify the task you're doing and that sanctifies you and then you can help sanctify others. And so there's a sense that the way you approach work can actually transform the very work itself to make it into something that is very holy. That then is transforming you as you do it into someone who is more holy. And then all your relationships can get transformed to become more holy. So that idea is, was imprinted on me early, you know, that there's this transformative power in your life, which is 
the building block of an hour of work. And, and depending on how you approach work, St. Jose would say work is the hinge on which your sanctification turns. Wow. The way you approach your work actually is like the way you approach all challenges in life. And if you find God in your work, you will have God always. So that work is actually capable when it's done at its very best of being open to God. And he taught you could actually have the fullest presence of God while working, which is called contemplation. And that if you if you continue to work at it with God's help, you can actually get to the point where your hours of work are actually hours of contemplation. And you can't tell the difference between a time of mental prayer and a time of work. So how does this fit in with the famous practice of the presence of God, uh, you know, a, a spiritual classic by Brother Lawrence? I think that that one addresses the idea of maintaining the presence of God all day long. And that is exactly where San Jose Maria was coming from, the sense that that is possible. And it's actually possible not just living in a kind of secluded setting, you know, but even like in the middle of the world, that in any task and for like a doctor in an emergency room can still actually be completely immersed in God while doing that. And I would say that that idea that it's only possible when you're actually working at your very best. If you're multitasking, if you're busy, if you're checking email every three minutes, and then you're checking the other thing, you're not able to do that. You have to actually craft the way of working, craft your attention. Work is simply ordered and sustained attention. And once it's ordered and sustained, that attention can be broadened so that even the presence of God is there attained through it. So at the highest stages where you actually love God continually through your way of working. There's also an element here of, and, uh, you know, I love talking about challenge and I love talking about embracing challenge. And that in each hour of work, the key thing you need to be in advance getting positive about is the challenge that's coming up because that is the opportunity for real growth and service. So, so that's so, so, the theory of growth that underlies all of optimal work, isn't it? That exactly. we find success through challenge. So what does it mean to thrive on challenge? And why are we often so afraid of challenges? Yeah. Challenge in the Christian context is simply the cross. And so it's the daily cross that you want to lovingly embrace. Each hour of work contains a quantum of the cross. <laughs> that is there to be, and what does the cross do? The cross lifts us off the earth and stretches us. So our intentions need to be lifted to God in this work we're doing, and we have to stretch ourselves in the task. And so embracing Kevin, the where stretch. where else would listeners hear the phrase quantum of the cross? I'm still chewing on that. It's <laughs> that just gorgeous. Why we, why we love you. I'm sorry. Continue. I just, that was so good. Yeah. And, and, and so... That's the, the, the cross actually is the essence of what is in psychology called reframing. Now, it's much more than that. It's a whole mystery. But at the psychological level, it means this thing that looks like a dead end and looks meaningless and painful is actually open to infinite good and infinite love and infinite meaning. And that's true of any kind of work that we do. But we have to stretch ourselves. Each time we do some task, we should be seeking to do it in a new and better and more loving way. And so we learn then to craft what we're going to do right before we do it, right? So that you can think of, you know, what does it mean to actually do the substance of my next hour of work better? Okay. that you can, It is one thing to you know say prayers while working, but that's not yet this what I'm talking about. We're saying that, no, the actual substance of the work needs to be done with more order and intensity, you know, and so that way it can be made into a loving sacrifice that you offer so that you actually have to improve the way you work to do it as well as you possibly can, and then you continually are growing in it. So that means then transforming your work means at the very most practical level, thinking of what, what's the skill I could do. That would really, that I can really work at improving here. Uh, 
as you work on building these skills in yourself, you're actually going to be also building virtues. And that's how you transform yourself inward. You're building up all these great qualities in yourself. And that allows you then to actually build up your relationships with others, the bonds. So skills, virtues, bonds, that's actually what reframing comes down to. Saying, what's the best way I can stretch myself and grow in this next hour of work? And that's how you then come to thrive on challenge. Whatever the challenge is, it's how you do that. I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking, well, maybe for academics who sit in big buildings and think for a living, um, but you're really talking about work in a nonspecific way, whatever the task is, whether it's brain surgery or uh, our painting or working in a factory assembly plant, it's taking your work and making it more than, than maybe it was before, aren't you? Yes. Any task you're doing, and this is true, a lot of the people that use optimal work are homemakers. Whatever you're doing is completely open to being an avenue of like love and service. Okay, then how do you make it even more loving? By finding ways of doing it in new and better, new and better ways. So Kevin, so you, what is this three-step process to have a golden hour that therefore leads to this growth that you are so enticingly talking about? Yeah. Well, this gets down into like fundamentally the way we, you know, we humans are constructed, the way our mind is. You, know, you, you have the intellect, memory, and will as the three powers of the mind. And when, you, when it comes to the act you know, right now, that comes to intention, attention, and action. So the intention is then, why am I doing this? Okay, and how essentially like looking at that image of what is the end? You know, and that end is the actually what reframing is all about. How could I grow the most? How could I love others the most in my in this as I do this next time at work? Okay, but that's how you powerfully shape your intention in that. And it's really applying your intelligence fully to the task to see what's the most beautiful thing you can make it. What's the best thing you can make it? Okay, what's the optimal stretch you can aim for in this? All of that is what the intellect contributes to the task. But all of that gets you out of threat mode and this kind of survival mode I was talking about and into thinking now about growth and practice. You know, and so that's such a key skill. You know, we could we could talk forever just about reframing. Now, another once you have that in mind, it's much easier then to bring silence to the mind, which means get your attention out of your head and into reality. So silence means there's nothing going on in the head. Into your, I'm talking about into your wow. silence. So yes. that you silence your mind. And so you find a way of settling your attention and grounding it in the present moment. So just having some... It could be 30 seconds, it could be three minutes, you know, but some time, you know, of silence. You know, I think that it's very natural for Catholics in that silence to be seeking silently the presence of God, yes. you know, putting yourself in the presence of God. So, you know, feeling, you know, God in yourself and your surroundings, upholding the being. So that Instead of thinking about God, just being aware that he is present and we are present with him. Exactly. And I think that that's the, how you exercise. I mean, it's funny, but even I think when a lot of people are praying, they're more they're not really in the presence of God. They're more like in the presence of their thoughts about God. Yes. So, yes. And so the, the constant thing, even just in any time of prayer, is like, how do you not do that? How do you get out of your head and actually yes. like into reality where God is uh, and uh, try to love God in himself as he actually is? And instead of just being stuck in one's own model, one's own mind. Well, yes. it's very much like that with work, to put yourself out of your head. Ex and, you know, in neuroscience, we have great, uh, you know, it's, there's two halves of your attention, two types of attention that operate. They can coordinate, but they can also fight with each other. There's the background attention called the default mode network or, you know, default attention. That's where all the churning is in the back of your head. That's where all the distractions come from. It's where words and images are constantly brought up and enter. That's the flow of things in the head. It's all called the default mode. The opposite, in a sense, because it's in the front of the brain instead of the back, is task attention or present attention. So what we want people to do is to be able to apply themselves 
fully to presence attention. So anything oh. of just tuning into the sensation of the breath, you know, the the breath is actually our biggest interface with reality. Because if you spread the lungs out, it's what a football field in size. <laughs> and so yes. that's a football field of interface with reality. <laughs> so I think that's, <laughs> there's something really grounding about just feeling the breath and using the sensation of the breath to quiet the mind. And if you have someone in an fMRI machine, while doing that, you see all the activity and electrical stuff in the background start to turn down and then shift to the foreground. But that's a necessary step for attending to the task at hand. You have to get out of your head into the present moment. And then the third step, so it's first reframing and then some kind of mindful silence. And then the third step is embrace the challenge. You know, and that's going to be aiming for and launching into the task with this idea of a clear sense of where you're trying to go and a clear stop time. So that you've crafted now the task in your mind. You've actually educated your brain on where it should be pulling you, you know, as you go and proceed through the steps of that task. And you find that you can just stay on task and enter into flow. So reframing, mindfulness, and challenge are actually the keys to eventually learning how to enter flow at will. Not that you can mechanically do it, but you can set the stage so well, it just tends to happen. So, so Kevin, I'm sure some listeners are thinking, golden hour, that, that sounds wonderful. If I had an hour, I wouldn't have so many problems to begin with. Mm-hmm. Does the golden hour have to be an hour? No. No, it can be any task that you do regularly. Just try pausing before you do it to think, how can I do this in a new and better way? Mm. Identify the stretch, be silent, and then embrace the stretch. And it can be done. It doesn't have to take long to do it. Now, we encourage people in optimum work to try doing it, if you can, sitting down you know, for something like 45 minutes to 90 minutes, um, just to like have the practice of doing those three steps. And then it's easier to do them on the fly. But I wouldn't want anyone to think that they can't do this because you can do it anytime. And, and, and it's, it's a matter of recollecting enough, slowing down enough so that you can simply have a short pause before you do things. See, when we, when we just sit down to like start working and we just want to dive right in, we're in this kind of like mode. We're just trying to get things done. And that depletes work of meaning. And it makes it really hard to do it for love or to find God in it. If we can well, why work, don't we try to mm-hmm. pick a, a concrete example that maybe a lot of listeners can identify with? The first one that came to my mind is I am really nervous about having a conversation with somebody that's going to be a little bit uncomfortable, and I fear mm-hmm. that. How can I turn mm-hmm. that into a golden hour or 10 minutes or 20 minutes? How do each yeah. of the three steps work for that? Because a mom, a friend, an employer-employee mm-hmm. can use that. Exactly. Well, the, well, the beautiful thing about that kind of example, and this is actually where doctors, we have it easy, is there's a person there. And so there's already a pretty clear bond that you could be seeking to build here. And more than just getting that person to do what you want, it's about building the bond. And whatever so comes on the bond yes. more than the task itself. Yes. The bond. I heard that in one of your podcasts. Exactly. That was mind changing for me. The bond is charity. Charity isn't simply loving God. It's actually the bond with God. It's a loving bond. So it's actually loving him and living with him. That's what Aquinas says. It's a, so that, and, so the, the, and with others too, the stable bond is, is charity. And so we want to have the sense that, you know, this could be with, the bond is different. You know, my bond with my patients would be different than my bond with friends and a bond with my family. But still, there's some appropriate way in each bond of building it up and making it somehow more true. But you can also think of what are the, what's, what are the virtues you would like to build in this conversation? And then you might be thinking, I would really like to keep my equanimity. I'd really actually like to stay cheerful and encouraging while talking to this person. Because if I can be, this is always the great way of reframing, if I can be cheerful and encouraging in this moment, Boy, I'm going to be like, wait, it's going to be so much easier for everything else. (laughs) 
just think this is the perfect kind of stretch practice for my cheerfulness, my patience, my being encouraging. Okay, so that thing, which would have been a trigger perhaps for dread and mm -hmm. you know, avoidance, actually now becomes a positive thing. You know, that you're going to, it's worthwhile, actually. It has meaning. Stretch yourself in it. Try to aim to be particularly connected and cheerful with this person. Okay, then move it even one step more practical. And what's the skill that you would work on? Well, the skill I would suggest in that case would be work on your tone of voice. Just keep your tone of voice warm. No matter what you're doing, do it in a warmer tone of voice. You know, to make, make the voice itself perhaps encouraging and cheerful and soothing. Okay, now, now you've got down to something very simple to practice. You know, and yet that practicing that skill, I'm not saying you have to go through it. That was like the, it, it would have been enough just to think, okay, I'm just going to work on keeping my tone of voice open and warm. You don't have to go through that whole thing. I was just giving it as the example of like sure. the, the fullness of it. You and could then how do we move into the second phase, that silence? How do we do that? So once you have the sense of, and again, it might just take a second to say, you know, what's the image I want to go for here? It doesn't even have to be exactly in words, but it has to be something that you find noble or beautiful, loving. Just have that image silence your mind enough that you feel like your mind isn't jumping around everywhere. You know, so you feel like you are completely in the present moment. And then launch into it, you know, so that you are aiming for, you know, like pr the practice that it's going to give you. you know, and there, you, you know, in optimal work, we have people lay out the steps in advance. Then just really embrace that first step, whatever it is, opening the and door, answering the phone, whatever it might be. And something that uh, you've helped me with is that when you do that, we often have this adrenaline churning. And just mm -hmm. telling myself, hey, this adrenaline is here to help me achieve what I'm trying to do mm -hmm. instead of thinking it's trying to prevent me from achieving what I want to do. Yeah. And what adrenaline needs is a positive goal because it, it automatically could have the negative goal or uh, fighting or fleeing. But the positive goal, okay. it helps you like, like imagine like a soprano. Adrenaline helps her hit the high note. <laughs> you want, but she needs the positive goal. It's not just not making mistakes, you know, but no, hitting the high note really well. And on that high note, we're going to end the first half of this interview and be back with more Kevin Majors here on Dr. Doctor. And welcome back to Dr. Doctor with Dr. Kevin Majors. Kevin, you know, we all go to work. At least I'm sure most of the people listening go to work. And, and I have a lot of employees in my practice. Some are happy. Some are not happy. And what's the difference and how do we start our day from the moment our feet at the bed, the floor, coming out of the <laughs> bed, to, um, to be happy and to enjoy the task that's before us today? Yeah, I'm, I'm always amazed that the main th difference is not the presence of challenges in people's life, but it's the response to those challenges. <laughs> yeah, isn't that and again, when people, when you think of what are the responses to challenge that are unhelpful. <clears throat> Something is tough for you and you start complaining, you start withdrawing, avoiding, or blaming others, or you know, whatever it might be, they're always the people are trying to protect themselves. So people, we try to protect ourselves from the challenges of the day. Well, at least we know with faith that we are going to find the perfect challenges today, the very best ones to help us to grow. Yeah, the universe is not maximized for comfort, <laughs> but it is maximized for growth. You know, that all, each of us is given all the opportunities each day that we need to actually grow in the sanctity we were meant to do that day. So to see then the day when it comes as something to be jumped into, I think is like the best way to actually start the day. And I mean, literally <laughs> jump out of bed. So to, there's... Probably like all of psychology is contained in that one moment <laughs> because everything touches on like what, how are you overcoming um, the negative approach to challenge? Well, the very first challenge of the day is actually getting out of bed. Mm. So, and, and that sets a kind of momentum in, you know, that this starts it going. 
Didn't Saint Jose have, Maria have something to say about that moment? He did. Yeah, a heroic, the, the heroic minute. minute. Yeah. What is that? Although, yeah. So it's, it's it's literally just jumping out of bed the moment your alarm first sounds. But why is it heroic to a saint? I mean, for a saint to say this, that's a big deal. Yeah. So he he found it very challenging at times in his life, uh, and and that's okay. That it's challenging is is not the issue. It's your response to it. Mm. You know, and if you see that, okay, this is, uh, hey, this is like a wonderful, you know, Lenten sacrifice, or this is a wonderful sacrifice I can offer for someone, but it also makes the day much easier. As people lay in bed, well, one, they're not going to get any more good sleep, mm. but they also will tend to be ruminating or worrying about things. And that's just going to make the day feel heavier. There are actually experiences that have been done when people first wake up in the morning, and then you have them pause, don't get out of bed, just think about the events of your up that coming in the day, they will all report that these events feel like very heavy. <laughs> but if they just get moving and then think about the day, it's fine. And it's called the cognitive distortion of sleep. So, but this is different, different topic, but it is fascinating. And just to say, there's a lot of wisdom contained, you know, in getting a right momentum in your day as it first starts. And it's a sacrifice that doesn't in any way harm your health. It's perfectly fine. It's perfectly safe. You know, and you just have to have, um, you know, perhaps like the readiness when the alarm goes off, it's never easier than that first second mm. and just, and just go and then keep up in your morning, a solid momentum, you know? And so I think in OptumWork, we encourage people to exercise a lot. It doesn't have to be a lot for a long time, but it should be frequent. So getting some brief, short exercise at least, and then a time of silence. So a time of silent prayer is ideal. A time of mass, these are beautiful practices. Don't check any email or social media until after that. So that you really, like let the morning be a protected time, you know, it, as much as you can. And if you have lots of children and, and it's hard, you try to do the best you can. But the goal is to see how do you make the morning the kind of incubator for the rest of the day. Does exercise coming before prayer more important than prayer before exercise? Is there one way better than the other? It certainly wakes you up and gets you, I think, a little more ready for prayer. And so and you end up having better attention after exercise, typically. So what's your so, personal yes. choice? Yeah, I always exercise first. And I then pray. Get up, and then I exercise, and then I pray. And then and then uh, after all you know that is done, it's like you've... all. In some sense, you've already won really important victories. <laughs> won the day. <laughs> yeah. And then the rest of the day can continue with that momentum. But if, if not, you can always restart at any point in the day. And so having a clear beginning time for your day's work, if you have the possibility, there is an ideal rhythm to have, which is having sprints and breaks. So really, the in general, the longest people should work is about 90 minutes without having some kind of break. There's actually neuroscience research on that, but there, are, there have been learning tests that have been done that have shown that after 90 minutes of learning, this is you know, in a laboratory learning experiments, mm -hmm. uh, you really do have a steep drop off. And so, and it takes a break to restore it, but with the proper break, usually in optimal work, we recommend 10 to 15 minutes. And then you come back, briefly set the stage and do it again. And a break Sometimes doesn't involve a screen, right? A break ideally, should no. have what characteristics, yeah. Kevin? So a, a break should be not doing. You don't want what neuroscientists call duration path outcome. So that you're going <laughs> to say, okay, I'm going to have two minutes you know, to do these three steps to get this thing done. So that's how task attention works. But it also does need moments of release. Instead of being in that kind of doing mode, you need to be in being mode, to be with loved ones, to be outside, to be walking, you know, but just to be being. Uh, and it is helpful also for the eyes, if you can, to not be reading a screen during that time, because the laser-like focus, you know, that we mostly are using, you know, in our work uh, is taxing. And there's something about letting the, you know, your panoramic vision turn on having a far view, seeing a horizon, looking out a window that activates a completely different set of neurons 
and is kind of restorative for the for the whole you know part of your brain in charge of vision. So there, there there's a lot of wisdom in getting a walk. Really, students have it made if they're attending classes in person because they have about you know something like fifty minutes of class, and then and they, they walk. have like a, a ten minute walk somewhere <laughs> they walk. else. They should enjoy that while it lasts. <laughs> You know, so, it's funny hearing you say that. Tom and I both are homeschooling families, mm-hmm. and uh, I can distinctly remember my wife, head of the homeschool, yelling <laughs> at the boys to run to the stop sign because they couldn't add simple numbers. They got back <laughs> from the run. Their math skills had improved exponentially. <laughs> yeah, um, it's amazing. Um, I know in my own case, my writing speed more than doubles after exercise. So it's just it, it, and I think that the literature supports that that the actual processing power goes up with exercise. Well, why so don't you tell people your exercise prescription for optimal thinking and, and mental tasks? Yeah the 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 long the the, the short answer is the a short ten answer. minute jog with three thirty second sprints. Now, what so if somebody four, cannot yeah. run? What do you then a bicycle? You can use uh, you can do sprints on a bicycle too, and it's basically the same idea. Um, you can do it on an elliptical, although it's a little harder. Um, even in swimming, you know, you can do sprints. So, but the idea is that you have a certain pace, and then there's an interval where it goes to maximal, and then you go back to the same pace. If 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 those things don't work, they should probably just talk to their doctor about it and see how can they get interval training. But the highest interval training is called sprint interval training. And, uh, and the, the studies have done, it really does just take about a 10-minute setting to attain three sprints. And in the literature, the sprints are 20 to 30 seconds. Uh, but you get the maximal benefits, not for burning calories, but for everything else uh, from this you know, the sprint regimen. And what we're interested in is the ability of the brain to sustain attention. It's like forming a neural net. It's called a theta lock. But that's how you lock into a task. And so the ability of the brain to do that um, is increased by the hormones released by exercising. So exercising makes it easier afterwards to settle your attention and keep it as long as you want on just one thing. Silence prepares that. So if you're attaining silence, if you're trying to attain silent love of God, well, that would be the highest kind of theta lock you, know, you can have, but just means that you're, you feel the tension has settled there and it stays there. Now your task attention just stays on. That actually is what happens in flow as well. Flow is a theta lock state, presumably. This is the research is still is still being done, but it seems to be that when at least we know when people are just doing one task at a time, their brain can go into long periods of maintaining that exactly the same state of the theta lock. But to do that, the brain needs to be, all your neurons have to be fully healthy. And the health, the growth factors that make it like that are released immediately by intense exercising and they last for about two days. So your intelligence goes up with exercise and silence. It's interesting. It's almost as though we have to walk away from work to do a better job at work. But that's so counterintuitive. I mean, mm-hmm. the work, work, work makes me think I'll just press on a little harder for a little longer yeah. and I'll force some more work product. But the yeah. product's probably not going to be as good, is it? Well, I think that there's this – Thomas Sterner has a wonderful book um, called The Practicing Mind. Uh, and, and there he, he was a piano tuner at one point in his life. That guy had so many different jobs, but he was a piano tuner at one point. And so he would he realized you know, that – it would take him like a couple hours to tune a piano, and his, but he was kind of disorganized in how he was going about it. He said, oh, you know what? I am not just going to do this one task. I'm just going to focus on one string completely at a time, give it my total attention, and I'm just going to move slowly, string by string. And so he did that, and then he finished. And he was shocked. It took half the amount of time it would normally take. And so that's what happens. Sometimes you do slow down and you get more speed. Mm. And, and so slowing down, before, don't just jump into work. Pause to craft it for a moment or more than a few moments if you have the time of to, you know, to enjoy the silence in your mind and then transfer that attention in, transfer that attention into the task itself. So Kevin, you talk about flow beautifully, but there's another similar but different 
state that people get in often that you that you and others have termed hyperfocus. What's yeah. the difference between flow and hyperfocus? At one level, hyperfocus is a very uh, left brain dominated state, and flow is a right brain dominated state. Mm. What that means is hyperfocus is just about obtaining the satisfaction of an outcome, and you actually get captured by the outcome. So that now you know the when you're when you're captured by it, you do lose track of time, uh, and so that's a little bit similar to flow, uh, but you are not doing it deliberately. It's much more of an automatic kind of state. When people are in hyperfocus and you interrupt them, they don't have the freedom to transfer their attention. The hallmark of flow actually is that even an interruption can be incorporated into the flow. So that when you're in flow and you get interrupted by someone, you just transfer the 100% of your attention to the person until it's done and you transfer 100% of your attention back to the task. It was just like another step unfolding in the task. So interruptions when you're in flow are no problem at all. That's why people working in ERs and in busy homes can actually be in flow, but not if they're dividing their attention and multitasking. That's what destroys flow. Okay, so here's a practical question I want to ask. And that is sometimes I get focused so much on something I'm researching or writing, and I think I'm in flow, but I don't hear anybody around me. And all of a sudden, if I hear somebody knocking on my, my door or calling my name, I, I startle easily. Mm-hmm. So does that mean I was in hyper-focus? I'm not angry. I'm able to turn my attention, mm-hmm. but I startle. Where does being startled fit in with flow or That's hyper-focus? probably a different thing. The, okay. the, I think with, with, um, with, because hyper-focus is such a left-brain thing, yes. you know, that, and it's looking for the satisfaction of the outcome, the moment the person gets interrupted in hyper-focus, they respond instantly with frustration, and right? So they're irritable, and that's just because frustration is the flip side of satisfaction. Like you're aiming yes. for satisfaction, and it gets temporarily thwarted, and you get frustrated. <laughs> yeah, and the, but the whole, thing, yeah. I'm not upset. I'm just I just wasn't aware, and I'm drawn out of yeah. where I was. But I'm not mad. Exactly. I think that's just because. That? Oh, I don't know. You need to get out of it. It's probably benign. Okay. Yeah, I would. I would be. I would let it happen. Okay. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's that that kind of reaction just meant that you were so into the task and perhaps completely in flow, you know. And the fact that you're not frustrated is a good sign in there right. that um, you weren't tracking the surroundings. And so when you get knocked, it's out of like the blue. Uh, I, I think that actually is a small price to pay for really getting into your work. And yeah. <laughs> thank you, doctor. Although, although listening to that, it reminds me of uh, the many conversations that happened in my own home and other homes where my spouse would say to me, why do you not hear the baby crying? And I would say, the same reason you don't hear my beeper. <laughs> yeah. Um, That's right. So focused on, on what it is that we choose to be focused on. Some of us are better at that than others, I think. Yeah, exactly. Kevin, what would be some of the best ways that listeners could benefit from what's on your website and your Golden Hour podcast? Well, I guess with the podcast, the um, there is a YouTube channel which has the video that goes with the audio and um, the or there's the podcast itself. If there's any topics there that are interesting, that can be a good way of entering uh, the the podcast. Don't necessarily fall. It's not like you have to start at the beginning. You can basically just pick up anywhere. And we talk about the same types of content from time to time. So then people kind of will get used to it. On optimwork.com, the there's like the, the the biggest kind of educational effort I've ever made is the masterclass. And the masterclass is a four-week training program to give people the complete course of growth. Mm. And we've had a lot of people go through it now, and the results are amazing. You know, but the ability to overcome anxiety and distraction and to find meaning and bonds, that they can build bonds in their time of work. So we've had this like, incredible response to the masterclass. That lays it out step by step, day by day. And I've noticed that even though you don't use particularly Christian language in it, it's the whole thing is underlain by Christian principles. I like to think, you know, you hear about this prosperity gospel concept and where they kind of take secular principles and try to glom the gospel onto it. But mm-hmm. this is all infused with it. It's different, isn't it? It is. Cause I think that 
The prosperity gospel is saying that somehow outcomes prove worth. Mm. And I, there's something I deeply disturbing to me about that. Yes. Yeah, because we we can't always control outcomes, right? And so, and 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 no outcome in this world tells us anything definitive about anyone. But and the, then the process, the focus on process, is where it's at. Mm-hmm. And in those prosperity gospels, we hear the the outcome is really material wealth, uh, as opposed to this sense of the beauty and the holiness of work. Um, yeah. No, absolutely. The whole thing is all about these like tangible, actually very left-brained outcomes. Mm. You know, and so I think that this is a left-brained distortion of, you know, of spiritual principles. To say that somehow if you do these spiritual things right, then you get all the material, you know, promises. Mm. But focusing on outcomes always sets people up for frustration. Even like whatever it might be. If you're focused on, you know, you might think that you're working, you know, for higher motives, but it's easy for us to get, you know, fixated on idols, some kind of success, some kind of money, or at least making a certain amount of money or having this position. So we get all these idols in our work and the pursuit of them puts us into hyper-focus and we get terribly, even if we attain them, we're never satisfied. So outcomes are never satisfying. But if you learn to work in the right way, if you learn to actually work for God and change the very substance of your work to do it better, you actually see that it doesn't matter what you're doing. You can grow maximally and love God maximally in anything. Kevin, this is just so practical and outstanding. I hope that some of our listeners will listen to your podcast. They're bite-sized. They have practical topics. We hope to have you on again. Kevin, thanks for being with us again on Dr. Doctor. Welcome back to Dr. Doctor, and listeners know it's time for the answer to this episode's medical trivia question. Yes, so we talked about the theory of flow, and why did Dr. Mihai Csikszentmihalyi call it flow? Well, the answer is he was interviewing uh, people who described their flow experiences, of course he didn't call them flow that, as using a metaphor of a water current carrying them along. In other words, when they were in that state, which we call in the zone, just doing something, they felt like they were externally being carried along, like with a river current, even though they were acting themselves. So that's where he came up with the very unscientific term of flow, but it's really a beautiful term that describes when we are acting at our best and often acting virtuously and lovingly. That's fascinating. A book that I'm reading uh, by an author you might know uh, mentioned the idea that maybe Christ was sort of in this state of flow uh, and the Garden of Gethsemane that he was being he was being carried along um, by by a different river of sorts. But it, but it's a it's a fascinating concept, uh, and yeah, I bet most of us have experienced it at one point or another, even if we didn't recognize when we were and we thought this is really cool. I wish I could do this all the time. And in one of his previous episodes, Kevin mentioned, and I think he alluded to it tonight, that we can be in flow most of the day when we are completely in our task. I mean, if that's what we're meant to do at that moment, of course we can be all present. And that was one of John Paul II's great things. When he met a person, he could be all present to them. It's like he was in flow with each person he met. Yeah, even with multiple people. Yeah. You know, the uh, takeaways of this show. We always run out of time with Kevin. That's one of the takeaways, isn't it? <laughs> we always we always need more time. Um, so many great things from uh, from him and from this episode. Uh, I think the, the first thing that comes to mind is the concept that internal silence it requires us to put our attention out of our head, uh, as he said. And it reminds me uh, of another episode you and I did with Sister Marisha, where she yes. talked about we've got to get external silence to ever achieve internal silence. And we have to be internally silent to ever hear the voice of God. But this yes. idea of just being instead of thinking um, is a way to achieve that silence. Uh, next, I would have to say, uh, and this and these are not in order, but I loved what he said about difficult conversations um, when you ask him that question, this yes. idea that no matter what you do or what you say, do it or say it with a warmer tone. 
uh, not nicer words or something like that, but a warmer tone. We could all do that, and the world would be a better place. Amen. And then uh, you and I both, I know, love this. He said, <laughs> at one point, we both started writing. He said, the universe is optimized for our growth and not for our pleasure. <laughs> and, and I feel like that should probably be on the wall in my home somewhere. <laughs> Chris. It's just a fascinating discussion with him. I mean, th this idea, and it does make me think of John Paul when you referenced him, that work work is not bad. Work is not ugly, or it, it doesn't have to be. Work, work can be very noble. noble, and it can actually bring us much closer to God because it can. the act of work can be the act of being in his presence. Chris, and Anna, what a beautiful note to end this episode. Thank you, listeners, for being with us for another episode of Dr. Doctor. We are the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. Please share the good news of Dr. Doctor with one of your friends or two of them or more and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app. Uh, and be sure to rate our program on your podcast app that helps other listeners find us. You can check out this episode and all of our episodes way back to the beginning on our website, drdoctor.org. And be sure to tune in next week for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And this is Dr. Chris Stroud. And we're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host or the Catholic Medical Association. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Tune in for new episodes every Friday and find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.